Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the lovely podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I am your lovely host, Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 40, and we're going to take a look at the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, but first of all, I want to give a big shout out to my listeners because you guys are awesome. I greatly appreciate you. So let me go to my lovely list here. So a big shout out to Oklahoma, Texas, Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Good to see you again, Ohio, uh, British Columbia, District of Columbia and Oregon. Um, I'm going to list off some countries here. First of all, the United States, Canada. Love you, Canada. I, I love Prince Edward Island up there. where Anne of Green Gables was filmed. I like the original that was filmed by Disney. This was probably back in the 80s. That's my favorite one, but it's absolutely a beautiful place. The United Kingdom. Hey, how are you guys doing? You guys are good as well. Then we have the Netherlands, Slovakia. Haven't heard from or haven't seen South Africa. Listen to this lately, but still love you guys very much. And then Japan and Denmark. And there was another country that listened in. I can't remember what one it was. I'm not seeing it on my list, but I've got a couple different lists here. Um, but anyway, this is really good that this is growing and expanding. I think it's wonderful. It really brings me great joy and plus it's nice to do something that you love. So again, today we're going to take a look at the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. Now this one might sound familiar, but it's not. We haven't done it before and the reason why it might sound familiar, hold on a second, I need to turn down the heat because it's really running now. So hold on just a moment. There we go. Otherwise, I'm going to start sweating while I'm sitting here like all dressed up for winter. So, um this one is an association and here's the thing. This might sound familiar because we have looked at different letter carriers in previous episodes and we've also look at USPS. So what happens here is this. So you have USPS which has its own labor union, right? But then you also have these different associations that USPS contracts labor out to. Sometimes they contract labor to these associations, these other labor unions, and other times they contract out to private contractors that may not be within a union. So USPS the workers that work for them they may or may not be wearing the uniform especially when they're on a route but the thing is they may not specifically only work for or through USPS like they they might have gotten that contract or job due to their own labor union and it's just the the work or the craft happens to be in conjunction or be located within USPS but they may or may not be an actual employee of USPS so their benefits are going to be different they're probably going to be on a different pay structure and they will be reporting to different people so they they kind of have to work things out because they're they're contracting things here so that's why this might sound familiar because you have the word letter in there the letter carriers but there's different types of letter carriers that deliver different types of mail. So let's go ahead and take a look at this one. This one is the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, also known as NRLCA. It was founded in 1903. It's headquartered in Alexandria, Virginia, location United States. 
As of 2019, they have 115,104 members. Their president is Ronnie Stutz. Their vice president is Donald L. Maston. Their secretary treasurer, who controls the money, is Clifford D. Daling. The director of labor relations is David L. Heather. The director of steward operations is Susan T. Knapp. The executive committee chair is Jeanette P. Dwyer. And the executive committee includes Shirley Bapa, Dennis Connolly, and Patrick Pitts. Now, when I look at the emblem or symbol of this organization, it's actually quite cute. It's really neat. It has a horse and buggy on it, and their, their、uh, slogan is service with a smile. And what I like about this emblem is that it has a horse and buggy on it because I think what we forget is that way before automobiles were invented or way before the average person could afford a car, a vehicle, The only way of getting around,、um, if you didn't have bus or subway or some type of transport, or if you didn't walk or have a bicycle, you had a horse and buggy. And so that's how some of the mail was delivered, especially out into rural areas, which is outside cities, it's outside towns, so like to farmers and things like that. So it's very important to remember that there are different types of letter carriers because you have different geographical regions that are not close necessarily. To a USPS hub. So, for example, what you might notice is if you're going through some small towns and,、uh, you know, in the United States and you notice that there's a random post office way out in the boonies, and you're wondering why is this way out here? Well, sometimes they would put post offices way out in the boonies, but so that all the surrounding farmers. Could get their mail because not all mail was delivered. You know, back in the day, not all mail was delivered to your house. That's actually a current luxury that we have because initially mail was not always delivered to your house. You had to go pick it up from the post office, and you may or may not have had a box. Kind of depends on how nice or advanced the, the post office was at that time. But it, it was very common,、um, especially here in Oklahoma. Uh, it was very common for people to not live in town and to not live in a city, to live out in the boonies because we had a lot of manufacturing and we still have a lot of farmers. And so, in, in those situations, when they did not deliver the mail to your house, what they would do is the, the owner, you know, the farmer or whoever, family member, they would go into town to get their mail. And then that was typically a business day for them. Like they would. Say, hey, I'm going to town. Do we need any feed? Do we need any cheese, milk, grain? You know, it almost reminds me of these Western shows that are on this really cool t- television station on what we call the rabbit ear stations, like MeTV or Grit. It's called Grit. And so it's kind of like one of these, like, if, let's say, for example, you have Channel 43. You know, it'd be 43 2 or 43 3. It's kind of a lesser known channel, but they have great shows on it. On this station, it's called Grit, G R I T. They have great westerns on there, really good. And a lot of them, you know, so many of them are very realistic of how things were way back in the day. So, whenever you see an old western where they show where people had to go to town to get their mail, to buy supplies, maybe to go to the bank, and it was a big deal to go into town, it, it was kind of like. A little mini vacation, but during the week, like it was a big deal. So it was usually to conduct business, things of that nature. So that's why 
you know, we still have some of these random uh, post offices out in the boonies, is because that was really the only way for people to communicate with people that were way out in the sticks because they still needed to get their mail. They still had business to conduct. And what you have to remember is that it, you know. We take a lot of things for granted, and I don't mean that we're selfish or horrible, nothing like that. But you know, we don't realize that most of the, the technology that we have today was obsolete or not even invented yet. It was maybe in its infancy way back in the day. Like back in the 1930s in Oklahoma, I know not everybody had running water to their house. They did not have indoor plumbing, so you you had an outhouse to go to the bathroom. Um, You also try to think what else? Not everybody had a car. Some things were still horse and buggy. Like some of the electric cooperatives, like Oklahoma Electric Co-op, um, which is electricity utilities, a lot of that stuff was not around till like the 30s or 40s or something. Like, and here's another thing: even if they did have like OEC and OGE, which is our utilities here in Oklahoma, and probably a couple others that I don't know their names. Even if there was electricity in cities or towns, those electricity lines may not have gone all the way out into the sticks just yet because it costs money to build infrastructure. So, and also paved streets. We talked about this in a previous podcast where, you know, unless you lived in a city, the odds of you having a paved like cement streets was, you know, a luxury. It was it was rare. So we still have gravel roads. You know, especially out in the sticks, out in Oklahoma, because the city is not going to waste its money on roads that are not used very often. So, as much as I don't always agree with that, because I believe in safety, but it's just one of those things that you know you have to take into consideration that there are different modes of transportation, and there are I was going to say different walks of life, but that doesn't have anything to do with this per se. You're dealing with technology and what is readily available. So it doesn't surprise me that mail was delivered via horse and buggy. And if you want to see how some of this was done, watch some of the westerns that are on um, the television station Grit. It's really good, and you will probably recognize some actors from the '40s, '50s, and '60s. People that you never thought would be in a western were in a western, and it's really good. I'm really surprised that they had these shows on. But what I love about these westerns. Is that they have way more. First of all, they're way better than most of the shows that are on TV these days. They're cleaner. They use. I can't think of a single foul word except for the word hell, which they very rarely use. But you know, there was no. Um, I'm not gonna say there's no vulgarity per se, but there. Um, they didn't use the Lord's name in vain. The language was better. There wasn't these random graphic, sometimes disgusting sex scenes. Um, it was very, it was very clean compared to today, and plus that was nice, and is nice because you get to hear the story, you get to see more of the characters and things like that instead of being bombarded with sexual images and really horrible language that you don't want to see all the time. I mean, technically, I don't want to see ever in television because to me it feels awkward to see that. I don't want to see that, but.、Um, Plus, what's really good about these Western shows is they have kind of like character-building traits in them. I'm like, you know what? Kids should be watching westerns, these westerns from back in the day, because they will learn so much more. First of all, about how to treat other people. 
also how to react appropriately in situations, how not to react, and also they will learn about how to be a part of society but still be you, if that makes sense. Like there's a lot of character building in these shows. and it it teaches you so much and i'm like this is what kids should be watching like you know if i had kids right now that's that would probably be one of the few shows that they would be allowed to watch because what i don't like about a lot of the current shows we have now they're always trying to push some political agenda onto kids or a sexual agenda or some kind of platform or a cause or or something on our kids and it it's like you know that's not appropriate children are children and to me it just seems like the more we have the media who is not a parent it's it's just people in the entertainment industry they may have their own kids but you know they're trying to dictate to all of us the rest of us in the United States how to raise our kids how to think how to speak and it's just kind of like you know like I just don't agree with everything that comes out of Hollywood or everything that comes out of of media. It's almost always wrong. It's almost always vulgar. It's almost always um I was to say against God's law, and I don't mean that in a harsh way, but it's just there's just a lot of behavior that was never considered um socially acceptable way back in the day. And sometimes it's it's just too graphic and it's just, you know, I I feel like Kids don't need to see this stuff. You know, let them be children. I think children that they're I feel like their their childhoods are being stolen from them because they're having adult information basically downloaded into their brain. That's what happens when you watch or hear something. Your your brain is categorizing that data. So you have several generations of children that are being exposed at a very young age to very adult graphic material and I'm not just talking about porn um but very adult graphic material and it's just like you know children are innocent and they're they're growing up so they need to have appropriate material for children and keep it that way I know that's a side note a tangent but it's just one of those things that I I'll put it this way like if you go to the mall and you observe people's behavior and let's say you're standing in line to get a movie ticket or you're standing in line to get a soda listen to what some of the young people are saying especially kids the things they talk about these days are so shocking because they're exposed to all this stuff that they should not be exposed to and plus their kids what do they know they're minors like they they can't vote they can't drive I mean they there's so many things they can't do and there's a reason for that. It's because they don't have the maturity level to handle those things. My personal opinion is and you may disagree with this, you may agree, I don't know, but my personal opinion is I don't think we should be exposing children, minors to things that are adult material when they are not mentally, psychologically, emotionally or physically prepared to handle I think it's I think it's a disadvantage big time. I just think it's wrong because I I don't think it's a good thing to mess with someone's childhood like that. And I just think it's I think it's a very dangerous thing to do because I think kids should be kids because they have the rest of their life to be an adult. But here's the thing. This is also a side note. It's probably the first I think the formation years of a child or the first 7 years 
if I'm not mistaken. It may be the first 13, but for sure the first seven years of a child's life, those are called the formation years. Where they really absorb things like a sponge, like to the extreme. Well, I look at it this way. What would I want my child absorbing? Do I want them watching smut all day? Do I want them being exposed to stuff that, you know, it's going to lead to a lot of weird questions? I'm not saying, you know, put them in a bubble. I'm not saying that at all. But there's a time and place for for things to occur and for conversations to happen. And it's within those first seven years that the, the child, that's really important for them to bond with their parents, both of them, the mother and the father. And I think what people don't realize is the more you put your kid in front of a television or in front of an iPad or an iPhone or whatever the case may be, the more you're just letting them watch all this stuff, even if you think it's good stuff, you know, you're still basically allowing someone else to raise your kid. And I think that's a very dangerous thing to do because your child belongs to you and what a great opportunity to have a family and, and to raise little ones. But, you know, especially those first seven years are, are the most crucial. Um, so if it was me, again, a side note, what I would do is I would have it be so that they do not watch more than an hour a day of television of any kind, any kind of series, anything on the Internet. And they either need to be outside playing or they need to be reading a book or doing some kind of activity inside. Because now we've got these kids, it's like they... It's like they don't really know how to play sports. It's kind of weird. They they don't really have any desire to be outside. They they're basically professional couch potatoes by the time they they graduate high school if not enter middle school. So, I think it's a disadvantage to them to not first of all let them be kids, but secondly to not mold them into you know good citizens because You know, is it a good citizen to just sit around all day and watch stuff? No, you're actually wasting your life away. If that's all you're doing is just watching stuff all day. It's important that we do what we need to do in our life to have a good life so that we can have a better life. Like like you want to continue to move forward. Does that make sense? I hope so. And I know this is a tangent, but I kind of felt like it was on my heart to talk about that, but um I just think it's important to make certain things are priority and to make other things second. And those first 7 years of every child's life are the most important, if not the first 13 years. And I say that because when I was in high school, as a senior in high school, I had I had the opportunity as one of my electives um was to be a tutor. So all everybody wanted to be tutors to the little kids. you know because they just look up look up to you you know kind of like you're a god and you're popular or something but i went to my teacher and i said where do you need the most help and she said for sure the teenagers at middle schools i said okay i'll go there so i basically got the most screwed up kids you have ever seen or met in your life and it was very distressing it was very shocking to me as a 17 and 18 year old but what i learned at a very young age was that by the time children reach age 13 or 14 probably 13 if they have been trained wrong all those years they are already really screwed up by the time they're 13 and let me tell you no teacher i don't care if they have a phd an md a do whatever i don't care what kind of teacher you have i don't care if you have 
you know, a genius teaching your class. There is nothing that a teacher can do to undo all the years of poor and bad parenting and of a turbulent upbringing. Because that literally scars a child. Like I, I had to deal with kids that were really screwed up. And guess what? Whatever happened in their home life affected their schoolwork. It affected their relationships um, at school or lack of it. Um, and I mostly got, um, I'm trying to think, I mostly got boys. Every once in a while I, I would tutor a girl. But the boys, when they're screwed up, they are really evil. and even from a very young age it's really sick like they they're just they can be really cruel to girls they're very hateful um they hate women so that's why i i get very concerned when people rely too much on technology to raise their kids cuz like oh i just want the kid to be quiet so i'm just going to give them an ipad let them do whatever well That's not being a parent and that probably sounds harsh and you're probably thinking, "Well, you're not a parent." That's true. I'm not a parent yet, but I do have experience. I have experience from volunteering, from being around kids, from being from having to deal with really weird parents, really hateful parents. It it's just bizarre to me. But what really saddened me was that it almost felt impossible to help these kids with their grades i mean i helped them get their grades up but you know the kids that i helped i would say 9 out of 10 of them did not have a mental disability not by any means they had a psychological and a emotional disability because of how they were raised and they did not um they did not have the character building skills that should have been instilled in them as a little child because i don't think these kids were treated very well they were very much mistreated and this was in a public school so you can only imagine public schools um get kids that pretty much nobody wants when they're really poorly behaved because what you have to remember is that sometimes when kids are going to public school it's not because their kids can it's not because their parents can't afford private school Some of these kids have gotten kicked out of private school because they were so horrible and evil. Um so and I literally do mean evil. Like it was very shocking and what what sucks is that teachers are not prepared for this and plus also it's not their job. It really is. And there might be some people listening saying, "Well, oh, yes it is. Yes it is. They're the teacher." That's the thing. They're just a teacher. They're not the mom, they're not the dad. Like they're not the parent. they they are a paid worker of the education system within that city or state they they are not the guardian of that child can they be concerned or report things sure you know they i know that teachers do their best with that but i've noticed that parents put a lot of pressure on teachers to just fix everything that's wrong with their kid and that you know Teachers are not psychologists and they shouldn't be. They're not psychiatrists and they shouldn't be because the last thing we need is having psychologists or psychiatrists working in our schools all the time just constantly analyzing kids. I think that would be really cruel. But um you know they're not <coughs> excuse me. Let me get a drink of water. Teachers are not MDs or DOs. So to expect them to fix every little problem with every messed up or screwed up kid it, it's it's just ridiculous. 
I mean, we have to take ownership of stuff. Like like if I had a child and they were really screwed up and I didn't raise them right, then I would have to take ownership that hey, I failed my child. But let's put the shoe on the opposite foot. Let's say I raised a child, I did the best I could. I you know, I gave them a really good life and they're still messed up. Well, that means you got a problem with your kid. That that's beyond, you know, just normal parenting. Are there things you can do to make it better? Sure. But there are a lot of things that parents try to put back on the teachers and these teachers for the most part are just exhausted and I feel sorry for them. But anyway, I know it's a tangent, but it's an important one. But anyway, um so let's get back to the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. So we already talked about when it was founded and some of the basics and how many workers that they have. It's kind of impressive that they have a little over 100,000 um members. So when I say workers, I should remove that word, them uh, members. So that means someone that can be a current uh, employee or someone that's retired, which we will find out later about that. So it says here the National Rural Electric Carriers Association (NRLCA) is an American labor union that represents the rural electric carriers of the United States Postal Service. The purpose of this association shall be to quote improve the methods used by rural electric carriers to benefit their conditions of labor with the United States Postal Service (USPS) and to promote a fraternal spirit among its members. That concerns me a little bit when it says fraternal spirit because that kind of reminds me of the Mason's Lodge, and anything to do with fraternities tells me that they show favoritism, and that's not good or appropriate. That's not a good way to run a business. That's not a good way to run an association. I think it's okay to have associations and labor unions, but no one's better than anybody else in terms of this. Like there is equality within our country, and it needs to stay that way. So then it goes on to say. To join the NRLCA, one must be employed by the USPS in the rural carrier craft as a rural carrier associate, substitute rural carrier, a rural carrier relief, part-time flexible, assistant rural carriers, or regular carrier designation code 71. The NRLCA provides information and fellowship for its members at county, district, state, and national meetings. where all members may participate in a democratic process of developing association policy. The NRLCA provides a monthly publication, the National Rural Letter Carrier. I agree with that. That's really good to keep its members informed on postal and legislative matters of interest. So a little bit about the history. It says free mail delivery began in Amer- in American cities. Sorry, I completely misread that because I was thinking something here. It says free mail delivery began in American cities in 1863 with a limited scope. First of all, that's a lie. There's no such thing as free mail delivery. It's paid for by the postage that you purchase. And that's why our postage is so high. It's because it's overinflated because of the benefits that the workers are receiving whether it's super high wages or cushy health insurance, life insurance and retirement benefits. It really has to deal with um retirement benefits. being too high and unrealistic. Goes on to say shortly afterwards, rural citizens meeting outside the city, outside of towns, <clears throat> began petitioning for equal consideration. Postmaster General John Wanamaker first suggested rural free delivery, again that's a lie, it's not free, it costs money, of mail in the United States in his annual report for fiscal year 1891. It began in 1896 with five routes. and the first rural carriers were paid $300 per year for their services so see it's not free it costs money 
Someone has to pay for it. It's usually you and me. Seven years later, it, it had expanded to 15,119 routes covering 332,618 miles. However, inadequate pay was still an issue. I'm not surprised. They always want more money. The NRLCA was formed in 1903 at a cost of 50 cents per year in dues to its members. In 1906, rural carriers were granted six national holidays. Christmas was not one of them and did not become a holiday for rural carriers until 1923. I'm very surprised by that because, first of all, it's our Lord's birthday. Number two, the United States was way more religious back then than it is today. Like today, we're more secular, unfortunately. But back then, I'm surprised they would not... let Christmas be considered a holiday for them. That's kind of disturbing. It goes on to say, in 1924, a special association committee traveled to Washington, D.C. to lobby for an equipment maintenance allowance. The following year, it became law. In 1928, the NRLCA implemented term limits for its officers. However, term limits were repealed in 1932. That's a problem because there should be term limits. Otherwise, you're going to get the same people having the same job for a really long time And it's going to be run like a dictatorship, so that's kind of concerning. In 1941, tire and gasoline rationing from World War II affected rural carriers. NRLCA President Walker gained some exemptions from rationing for rural carriers. In 1946, the National Association of Letter Carriers, NALC, expressed interest in, 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 I can't even say, in incorporating RFD into their union, so basically bringing them into the fold. In 1947, the NRLCA declined. I'm not surprised because they wanted autonomy. I don't blame them for that. They wanted to negotiate their own contracts is what that tells me, and I agree with them. I think that's great. On January 17, 1962, President John F. Kennedy signed Executive Order 10988, establishing employee management cooperation in the federal service. Rural carriers selected the NRLCA as their agent, and on July 12, The NRLCA became the first postal union to sign a national exclusive contract with the post office. In order to qualify, unions needed to demonstrate that they did not discriminate based upon race. I think that would be very difficult to prove because people can be racist all day and all night and you may not physically see it. Like just because they may hire, you know, African Americans or Mexicans here and there, that doesn't mean that they're still not racist or they might be overlooking them. to hire somebody else. It's kind of like, you know, anybody can lie, especially on like these these kinds of things or on the personality exams, those personality tests. There's such lies. It's so stupid. And plus your personality can change over time. That's why whenever I'm doing a contract or I or I or I am applying for a job and they want me to take a personality test, I'm like I literally I'm just like no, I'm not doing it. I was going to use a different word, but I'm like no, I I don't care to do that. If anything, I think that's an invasion of my privacy. Uh, to me, it feels like an invasion of my brain because then if you don't get the job based on your personality, that's technically discrimination because they're saying, you know, we have an inclusive work environment, but we're not including you. So if anything, that's how employers can and should be sued for using those tests against the employee. A person's personality can change over time and plus a lot of times you don't know who someone is or how they're going to react. or how they're going to behave until you actually hire them and you give them a chance. So, and plus th- those tests are so illogical. Like people put way too much emphasis on those different types of tests, and I think when they do that, you are excluding people that also need jobs. Because I've met people 
that you know passed those personality tests or whatever, flying colors, and they were some of the meanest, most hateful, most evil, just immoral, wicked people I'd ever met. And I'm like, wow. So the personality test really missed that one. I have come across that time and time again. Like I've never seen it where it was actually correct or right. Because guess what? It doesn't prevent things like what they think it will. And also, people lie on those all the time. They know how to skirt around it. So I just think, you know, if you're trying to control people, good luck. Good luck with that. Because what I find interesting is that whenever we try and control other people, in fact, we're giving them a way to control us. Does that make sense? Like whenever we are trying to control another person, it shows our vulnerability and it shows our weakness. So then you're giving that person who, whom you're trying to control the upper hand. Because they're seeing, oh, this makes them uncomfortable. They're not sure what to do. So all I have to do is do the opposite, and this might, you know, totally ruin their day. That's how evil people think. And I've come across that in the work environment all the time, and I've worked uh, predominantly in the private sector. That's not to say the private sector is bad, but it's just there are so many employers that they love for you to just take all these tests and There have been so many jobs. I'm just like, I'm done with this. Like, just give me the job. Like, why aren't we just focusing on the work? See, because here's the thing. This is a side note again, but I've learned over the years that it's better to give people a chance to do the job and do it well as opposed to scrutinizing them and trying to get inside their head and then manipulate them and then trying to determine their labor based on how they answered some stupid test. That's not treating someone with equality. What's better is to actually focus on the job. You know, can you do this job? Yes. Okay, do the job. Let's see how you do. And then all you have to do is just do a 30-day, a 60-day, and a 90-day evaluation. That's very common within the workplace. Everybody knows about it. You know, you just kind of go with the flow. But the important thing is, is to give someone a chance to be a part of a team instead of, giving yourself a chance to exclude someone from a team. Does that make sense? Because that's what it felt like to me all the time whenever these employers they would always rely on all these weird tests I'd never heard of and I'm like this is great and I would ask them when I say this is great I meant that sarcastically but I would ask them I was like well who made this decision to use these tests and why are you using them? Well basically what this employer did this has actually been several employers but like oh it's a proven method. I was like really. So have you ever had an employee that scored really well and you had to fire them? And they just look at me in shock because I already know the answer is yes. So that tells me right there that those tests are flawed and they are not a true indicator of hardly anything except of wasting time. And I believe in time management. So for the fact that someone's wasting my brain space on these stupid tests that just irritate me and then there was one test this is a side note I don't know if this has happened to you message me and let me know about some of your weird experiences I think this would be a really good roll call on this but there was one test I had to take I did not know what so many of the words meant and I'm educated I mean I love to read dictionaries but I didn't even know what some of the words meant on this test so and it was english it wasn't in a different language but i was like i've never come across a test that i don't even know what these words mean they were so bizarre and so i i got up from from the computer and i went and found one of the managers and i said i'm a little concerned and they're like about what i was like well that test 
It's not making sense to me at all. I've never had this kind of test before. I can't even identify what it's asking me. I don't even know how to answer because I don't even know what some of the words are in the sentence. I've never heard of them. So first of all, I want to know is this the right test? Did I get assigned someone else's test? Am I assigned someone else's test from like a different industry? And if this is the correct test for me, I need a dictionary because I don't know what these words mean. They're so bizarre. I say I don't know anyone that uses these kind of words. And they were just really strange. I can't even think of one of them. But it was weird. It was so strange. And so they said, so they checked it. And it said it is the right test and you cannot use a dictionary. I was like, "Well, then how am I going to know how to answer it?" Well, just use your best judgment. I was like, "How can I use my best judgment if I don't even know what it's asking? Like you're basically setting me up for failure." And they just looked at me. I was like, "Don't you think it's really odd that you're using a test that the applicant, which would be me, I don't know what it's talking about at all and I don't like to fail?" and I don't like answering something that I don't know the answer to because there isn't an option that says I don't know. So I said, "Well, I can't take your test if I literally don't have a clue what it's asking." And they're like, "No, just use your best judgment." I was like, "Oh, so is that what you would tell a teenager, you know, when they're taking the SAT and ACT, um, is it ACT and SAT?" Let's say for example, you have students that have no clue what some of the words mean on their test and it's like every question i mean like literally every question i had no idea what it what it was asking and it was asking some of it was asking really weird psychological questions and it wasn't even a personality test it was something else it was like a workplace something or other test i can't remember what and um i was like i don't think this this test is appropriate but here's the thing like what if a high schooler was being given a test that they needed to take to show what they know and what they can do so they can get into college but you're asking them questions about stuff they have never been trained on they've never been taught they don't have a clue they don't even know how to answer it whatsoever like it feels like a different language how do you think that student is going to do do you think they're going to be able to get into college and they just looked at me i said well based on your silence i already know the answer is no they're not going to be able to get into college they're not going to score very well I think this test is really weird and they said well you know they were starting to understand which I don't know why they didn't understand to begin with but they were starting to understand what I was talking about because these people I know sometimes when people work a cushy office job and that's all they know and they they don't experience what they're putting the applicant through they just give you things to do that they've never gone through so then they have no idea what you're going through does that make sense it's just stupid i'm just like really like this is bizarro but anyway um they told me and this has been several employers have told me this that they um they really liked this research study i was like oh here we go in my head i'm like i'm rolling my eyes in my head i'm like here we go so they read some re- quote unquote research study from a fancy university and these crazy liberal nutbag professors think that all employers should ask these kinds of questions and if someone fails then you should never hire them they're they're bad people or something and i'm just like what i was like why are you allowing i just looked them right in the face and i was nice about it and i looked right at them and i said why are you allowing somebody else to run your company and their mouths just dropped And I said again, why are you allowing someone else to run your company and to tell you who to hire, who to fire, 
and control your 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 district, your state, your economy. And they didn't have an answer for me. They they couldn't answer it. They just looked at me in shock because they had never thought of that. See what they were doing, they were kind of, they kind of had what I call the rose tinted glasses on. And they think, and if you hear my stomach growling, it's because it's lunchtime, but I'm going to finish up this podcast because this is important. So I can fast for a little bit. That's okay. Um but they kind of had these rose tinted glasses on. We work in an office. We have a cushy office job. So we're going to look up all these these tests that come out of these fancy universities and put our applicants through this grueling process which doesn't make the applicant think very nice things about their employer because it's like if this is what they're asking me then what kind of problems are they having in the workplace because that's that's another thing I want to discuss for a moment. So what they did was they wanted to kind of how I word this Sometimes you have managers that want to show up other managers and the way that they show up other managers is they like to quote unquote improve their hiring process and try and look like they know it all. Oh, well we have a test from Harvard that we have our people take. Oh, well I have my employees take a test from Yale. Like it it's just arrogance. But yet they're making the employees and the applicants suffer at the hands of their stupidity and their arrogance and it's just a competition amongst themselves and it's like look if you want to take this test go ahead and t- go ahead and take it let me know how you do if you're anything like me you're probably not going to even know what you're you're not even going to know what you're reading it was bizarre so i found out that they were just picking these tests because they were popular and then there was one job i had this was years ago where uh the employer really they wanted me to take some kind of quotient test or something i can't remember the name of it i hated the book i was like here we go more psychological torture like seriously just let me do my job and leave me alone like like i'm an excellent worker i can do anything i'm not worried about that at all it's 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 this gray area stuff that doesn't matter about the job like i'm not paid to be mentally tortured by these stupid tests but obviously they think it's important even though i even though i don't agree with that but this one employer they had all the new hires which included me and i i was uh, being hired on uh, into a management position and so um i had i was hired on at the same time around my my boss who is a district manager And so you had all these employees and so we had to take we had to read this book that talked about your qualities, your traits, all this stuff. It was so annoying and I was like, "Oh great, here we go." I thought, "Am I going to lose my job if I don't answer it the way they want it?" Because here's the thing, like even though you're supposed to answer and be true to yourself, guess what? If they don't like your answers even though you're true to yourself, they'll fire you for who you naturally are. And I think that's sick and cruel because you're not even giving a person a chance to work, to earn a living. That's why I don't like these tests. They're getting in the way of people being able to earn a living and to live well and have access to health insurance, to have good quality care. I mean, it's that's what people don't realize with these stupid tests. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of my brain space and it's annoying. So anyway, so I took this test and I I'm pretty sure you you already know how this went. And so how this went down. So I took it. And I surprisingly I was shocked at this. I scored the best out of everybody that took this test. And so what um our boss's boss did 
she had us share our results. And I was like, oh, bleep. And I, I, I said the word out loud at the time. And I was like, I don't want people to know my results. I think that's wrong. That's a private matter. Well, this employer, um, she, uh, she was stupid. She was a partier and sleeping around and doing stupid stuff, even though she was in her 40s or 50s. And it's like she, she had just gotten out of a divorce, and she was going to sow any of her oats that she didn't get to sow when she was younger, which was disgusting to me because she would show up, um, unfortunately, dressed like she had just left a club and her hair was all messed up, eyeliner everywhere. And we're talking like 7 o'clock in the morning or 8 o'clock in the morning. And then I got to meet one of her boyfriends, and I was like, oh, man, he's hot, but he's a weasel. He's just using her for sex. He doesn't love her or care about her. But anyway, so anyway, just based off that description of her, I'm sure you can see why her judgment was not good in releasing these results, right? Well, my boss was angry that I scored better than her. And it was the test where it talks about your, your character traits. Like mine was um, I'm extremely moral. I'm loyal. I have extremely good ethics. I have a legal mind, and there's a fifth one it said. Oh, man, my, my boss, uh, who, who was a couple years younger than me, she was immature, because I've always kind of been mature for my age. But um, anyway, she was nice, but she, like, when she read my test results, she was angry at me because she read the results, then looked up, looked up at me and said, well, I'm moral. I have ethics. How come, my, how come that's not listed on my test? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I didn't write the book. I was like, it doesn't stop us from needing to do a job and do it well. But needless to say, that test completely ruined our work environment. Completely ruined it. It was, it was so horrible. So that's one example of where I don't like stuff like that. And that's why I kind of roll my eyes whenever someone's like, oh, we're – Well, we're, 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 we're fighting for social justice because we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to, what's it called, seek out and destroy social injustice. I'm like, good luck. Good luck with that. I, I think you're going on a mission that's absolutely stupid because social injustice starts with the individual. It doesn't start with the society. It starts with an individual's heart and how they view other people. So if, if you're on some rant or rave or some little battle cry about social injustice, basically the only way to get rid of social injustice would be for the human race to not exist anymore. But that would not be appropriate at all. See, because here's the thing. First of all, that would be mass murder, and, and that's really horrible and evil and heinous. But um, if you want to get rid of social justice... You have to walk in justice. Does that make sense? That's what I've learned. Like whenever I'm working with people that are racist, bigot, liars, evil, immoral, unethic, just heinous individuals, which I have worked with some people like that. They're very unpredictable and evil. The only way to counter that balance is to know who you are in your characteristics and to be unwavering. Because otherwise, you're going to be like a ship on the waters, and any storm that comes up is going to toss you about. But if you know what you stand for, then social injustice, is, it's, not going to, it's not going to be able to affect you as, as severely as someone that's constantly offended all the time. 
I'm offended about this. I'm offended about that. I hate this. I hate that. You know, just this constant whining, but in a very aggressive manner. Just know what you stand for and also be be grateful for who you are as a human being and just realize what your natural skill sets and talents are instead of trying to compare yourself to somebody else and don't get angry at somebody else just because you don't have what they have and that's what happened with this chick that happened to be my manager um and she was always undermining me in front of other people and it looked so bad on her and i would just shake my head at her i'm just like man and you know there were a couple of times she would apologize but i just say hey look you know we need to be able to work together and i don't know everything that's going on in your life even though i knew it was about that test i just said look we just need to do a good job that's it that's the basic of having a job you do a good job and and enjoy your work even if it's tough but you know there really is no place for being mean hateful backbiting because whatever behavior someone is displaying out of hate Just imagine how miserable they are on the inside. That's how I looked at this manager that I had and it was really quite horrible. But anyway, that's a long tangent, but anyway, I am totally against those tests and I think if you want to get rid of um racial discrimination, you you have to be careful how word this. You have to be careful who you hire. But also you have to be realistic that even if you have these rules and regulations there's always a chance that someone could slip through the front door or the back door and cause problems. But that doesn't mean that we overreact and start passing all these other laws and regulations and things like that like rules, laws and regulations do not eliminate 100% of the problem. They are there to guide you through a problem so that you have a better solution. Does that make sense? Like I think sometimes people think that that well for example that the police can solve any and every problem. They cannot. We don't have enough policemen. We never have and never will. And here's another thing, it's not their job to solve every every problem on the planet. Like that that's not the purpose of 911. Those are for extreme emergencies, like things above and beyond your personal control. Does that make sense even though we have rules, laws and regulations on the books about criminal activity and any kind of illegal activity it's really up to the citizens to do the right thing. Because those rules, laws and regulations are there they are help to de- they are there to help to deter but they're there to solve a problem, meaning a problem is already occurring. Cuz most of the time these rules, laws and regulations they can't prevent everything but we can solve everything and we can make it better i hope that makes sense i might be speaking in reverse but that's that's just been my experience in the workplace and the workforce because i think it's i think it's i think it's very foolish and i don't mean it's this disrespectfully by any means but i think it's very foolish to go into a situation and say oh well you know we are anti discrimination so it's not going to happen um good luck with that I think it's great to have anti-discrimination rules, laws and regulations, but to think it's never going to happen and then be <gasps> shocked when it does. I mean, I I just want to say grow up. The whole point of being aware of things is so you're not shocked and you're not horrified and so that you're able to appropriately address the situation as soon as possible. 
like how are this like rules laws and regulations and how we react to stuff in a calm manner is how we buffer it's kind of like a dam it's kind of like where you know you have a dam and it's controlling the flow of water well let's say social injustice or discrimination of any kind let's say that raises the water tremendously well guess what it's not going to break through you may have water that goes over the top of the dam because we have dams here in Oklahoma so that we have a continuous water supply because like i said in previous podcast we have very crazy weather here sometimes we have droughts so whenever we get rain we try and store it as much as possible so that's why we have a lot of man-made lakes so rules laws and regulations are like dams where they're they're holding back the 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 big issues and the main problems but if something should happen and those waters are going over the the wall of the dam it's just a trickle and it, or it may just be a wave here and there but it's not a full break through the wall it's not a gusher so that doesn't mean you won't ever have overflow of the water over your dam but because you've got that dam there it's not going to be as big a problem in in fact it might be minuscule so again Rules, laws and regulations don't halt or stop everything. They help you mitigate and they help you resolve things in the future so that way you're not just stuck there shocked and horrified. You're like, "Oh, we have a process, we have a procedure in place, we have a protocol. We know how to handle this. Is it disappointing?" Yes. Is it probably shocking to a certain extent? Yes, but we're not going to rely on our emotions and we're not going to act on our emotions. we're going to use common sense we're going to use our training and we're going to look at this as an opportunity to solve a problem not an opportunity to just stare at the problem that's how i look at it and that's been my experience um working as a manager working as a trainer and just dealing with the general public because that's the thing dealing with the general public oh man that will teach you so much big time and let me tell you this this is a side note as well dealing with the general public has really affected where I want to live in the city because there are pockets of craziness everywhere right like within any city and things like that but you know the more you come across odd behavior the more you kind of realize where it's stemming from and you realize okay who do I want to be my neighbor I'm not saying you can interview people but I'm saying like there's like a general vibe about things You know, that's how I tend to look at things. Okay, what's the vibe? You know, what signals am I picking up on that I can kind of navigate this easier? It's kind of the same thing with the dam. So just know that just because if something funky happens where it's discrimination or something really horrible happens and you lose your job and it's a whistleblower situation, you know, have a calm heart. And I can speak from experience on this and it may be it may sound harsh to you to say that, but have a calm heart because there's nothing worth getting your blood pressure up and having a panic attack and getting upset over it because we have rules laws and regulations in place to help us but even if they're not perfect and they're not there's always a better day for tomorrow so i say start living in the moment now start having a good day now so that way you can have an even better day tomorrow i'm saying don't live in shame and blame Don't live in agony because it's not worth it. It never has been, it never will be like, let me put it this way, this is going to sound harsh, pity doesn't pay the bills. It just doesn't. 
And sometimes when I say that to people, they, their mouth just drops, but I think they get what I'm saying. I'm like, look, I don't mean that harshly, but you know, at some point you have to move forward. Because if you don't move forward, you're just going to wallow in your misery and never push forward. And I can speak from experience on that. Like I've had some situations that just took me aback. I'm just going, oh, Lord, help me. Like I don't know what to do. And the Lord always helps me, always helps me. But what I've learned was that, you know, some of the situations I've been through in the past, they were horrible. Some of them were graphic. Some of them were very painful. It, it strangely prepared me for the lesser offenses that occurred in the future. And it, it, it prepared me more. I mean, I don't purposely go out looking for hardship. I don't. I try to avoid it as much as possible. But there are so many things that sometimes you have to weather the storm, but you have to know in your heart that you're going to make it through. And you have to learn wh- where to use your energy and where not to use it, if that makes sense. So kind of a different tangent, but I, I, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to discuss that in regards to, to a discrimination Because it takes so many different forms. And, you know, be, be careful where you put your faith and your energy in. Because I made the mistake of thinking that, oh, well, I'll just take these people to court. Because I know what they did was wrong. Well, just because someone did something wrong, that doesn't mean it's suable. I found that out. And it really broke my heart. Like, I was so depressed from that. I mean, it was just awful. I was like, this is horrible. But I learned that I, I can always move forward and I can always have a better day. And I know now what to look for. And now I know how to sue people. So sometimes, you, how do I word this? Sometimes you lose a case to win a case. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because I, I would hate for you to keep reliving what I lived through. It, it was not good. But things, I look at it this way, something is always winnable. You just may not win immediately, but you will win because you are a winner. Everyone is a winner. It's just when you win, you will know when it happens big time. So it goes on to say, this is about um, with, uh, see, they signed a national exclusive contract with the post office. In order to qualify, unions need to demonstrate that they did not discriminate based upon race. Good luck with that. Excuse me. Thus, the stipulation that only white delegates shall be eligible to seats in the National Convention was quietly lifted from Article 3. So that means it was in there. It was put in there by a bunch of racist people. So it was quietly lifted or removed from Article 3 of the NRLCA's Constitution about, or sorry, without the passing of a resolution or bylaw. So they wanted to do it in a way that was not noticeable to the public. A separate gender pay was also abolished in a ruling by Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. So, again, there's multiple types of discrimination. It's not just based on color. It can also be based on sex, and that's very unfortunate because I know what it's like to be discriminated against for that. It's, it's quite horrible. It's sick. It goes on to say, on September 8, 1978, the NRLCA was the first postal union to come to an agreement on a new contract when contract negotiations between the USPS and its unions nearly resulted in an illegal mail strike. So here's the thing. They were willing to go to an illegal mail strike. So they're willing to break the law. That's what's bad. On November 14, 2008, the NRLCA withdrew support from the Quality of Work Life Employee Involvement Program. So they withdrew from that. And it says on August 19, 2011, 
The NRLCA became the first labor union in the history of the United States Postal Service to elect a female president, Jeanette Dwyer, as its 107th uh, or sorry, at its 107th national convention in Savannah, Georgia. If you haven't been to Savannah, Georgia, do go. They have some beautiful plantation homes. It's best to go in the spring cuz the summer can get kind of hot, but it's a really quite a beautiful place. It says she served until 2018 when she chose not to run for re-election and was succeeded by her vice president Ronnie Stutz. Dwyer rejoined the board to fill the remainder of Johnny Miller's unexpired term on November 21st, 2020. She will serve until the end of Miller's term, which will be at the National Convention in August of 2021. It says here The NRLC ratified its first constitution on day 2 of its first national convention in Chicago, Illinois on September 12, 1903. Henry Haven Windsor, editor of Popular Mechanics magazine as well as the RFDW News, now the National Rural Letter Carrier and chair of the Constitution and Bylaws Committee, presented his committee's report followed by discussion on each article. One of the many topics discussed was union dues. Originally, the NRLCA sought $1 a year from its members. However, this was negotiated down to 50 cents a year by the time this constitution was ratified. In 1910, dues were raised to 75 cents per year. The following year, it was reduced back down to 50 cents a year. It took until 1919 for dues to reach the dollar originally sought or sought. The articles were amended and approved in order, and after adoption of each separate article, The entire constitution was voted upon and adopted in its entirety. So, just think about this. Someone wrote approved and they voted on and agreed with that they should only hire white male workers or white workers and that men should make more than women. So, from the beginning, they were practicing discrimination. That's what I mean by it's it's dependent upon the person. Because not all of society agreed with them on this. Just ask the women that couldn't vote back then. So just know that when handling discrimination or things that we don't like about society, it's on an individual level. Like you can't blame the entire human race, and and you can't blame an entire generation or things like that. Like you need to go down to the individual level, because that's where you get to the root of the problem. It's an individual's problem. not the entire country's problem per se it's the individual's problem goes on to say in 2007 bylaws were eliminated from the NRLCA constitution and wonder why in each state was directed by the national office to do the same with their state constitutions the NRLCA simply incorporated the existing bylaws within the constitution in their appropriate places as a result the existing NRLCA constitution underwent some renumbering i wonder why whenever they change things like that that gets my attention and this might explain it in 2011 the NRLCA ratified a national steward system so then it goes on to talk about their national convention it says their first national convention was held in chicago illinois and in september 1903 they list the different officers that were elected It says in 1908 women attended the NRLCA National Convention for the first time so before then they did not attend during World War II the convention was limited to a small conference in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1942 and Cincinnati, Ohio the following two years in 1945 a national board session was held in lieu of a delegate gathering so it lists all the different states 
It says where oh it says here at the 2020 convention which was set to take place in Spokane, Washington in August was canceled due to COVID-19. It says it is the first year without an NRLCA national convention since 1918 when it was canceled due to World War 1. That's very interesting. So the next section is about contracting with the USPS. So this is what I was talking about earlier where you have the USPS and then you have these contracts where they contract out work and meaning labor. So it says the NRLCA negotiates all labor agreements for the rural carrier craft with the post office including salaries. Rural carriers are considered bargaining unit employees in the USPS. This means that there is a contract between the postal service and the NRLCA. Only the NRLCA can represent members of the rural carrier craft in the grievance procedure, including providing protection and disciplinary actions. Following the establish, uh, establishment of Executive Order 10988 in 1962, the NRLCA and USPS established their first national agreement on a contract for rural carriers. As a result of this contract, the heavy duty agreement or evaluate pay system was established. Rural carriers are paid a salary based upon an evaluation of their particular route. Credit is given to all carriers' duties and compensated accordingly. On August 12, 1970, President Richard Nixon signed the Postal Reorganization Act. The post office department became the United States Postal Service, and the NRLCA became a union with collective bargaining rights for wages and fringe benefits. When the 2007 contract between the NRLCA and USPS expired, Rural carriers were operating without a contract for nearly two years, with the contract set to expire in December 2010 at midnight. It says negotiations between the NRLCA and USPS on a new contract ended in an impasse. I'm not surprised, and went into third-party arbitration. Again, I'm not surprised. Let's see here. On July 3, 2012, arbitrator Jack Clark. imposed a new contract upon the NRLCA and USPS that ran through 2015. Concessions by the NRLCA in the new contract mirrored concessions made by the APWU a year earlier. NRLCA Director of Labor Relations Joey Johnson voted with the USPS arbitrator to accept the contract despite a 2-year wage freeze, a two-tiered wage structure and increased healthcare costs from 19% to 24%. Substitute rural carriers and RCAs hired under the new contract faced a 20% cut in pay with no cost of living increases. New hire pay was cut from $19.45 to $15.56 per hour. On April 25, 2016, President Jeanette Dwyer met with Postmaster General Megan Brennan and her postal officials at USPS headquarters for the signing of a new national agreement to run to 2018. It is the first negotiated agreement between the Postal Service and NRLCA in more than 20 years not to go to arbitration. NRLCA members ratified the agreement in April with 83% of votes cast in favor. Now just think about that. This is one of the few agreements that did not have to go to arbitration in like 20 years. So that tells me they don't have a realistic view of their labor and what things cost. So that's a problem, meaning favoritism. They think that they're better and higher above than other people and they're not realistic about the economy and inflation. So and plus their their goods and their services. That's kind of a problem there. So moving on to the NRLCA PAC, the Political Action Committee PAC 
was created in 1975 to represent rural letter carrier interests on Capitol Hill by lobbying key government officials and staff on privatization of the postal service, five-day delivery, and other issues affecting rural carriers. NRLCA PAC supports members currently in Congress who are friendly to its positions, gains access to members who are on key congressional committees whose jurisdiction affects issues that are important to the rural carrier craft and develops relationships with current and new congressional candidates. NRLCA PAC also educates and alerts NRLCA membership on key issues and developments and encourages rural carriers to become involved um, legislatively. That concerns me because legislation belongs to the American people. It does not belong to specific interest groups. I think that's a manipulation of our laws and our legislations, and that is not what we were founded on. We were founded on equality and freedom. So maybe they should read our Constitution of the United States and not be trying to rip it up or add to it or take away from it. So the next section is about the six-day delivery. In the 1970s, Postmaster General Benjamin F. Baylor suggested five-day delivery as a means of battling high energy costs resulting from the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, also known as OPEC, embargo that resulted in a worldwide oil crisis. Hence, we should always have our own resources and not be dependent upon anybody else. It's very foolish to rely on other people, especially when they're just going to drag you through the mud and inflate the cost and make you pay financially. And that's what happened with OPEC, especially during the 1970s. And that's why we had a oil, um, oil and gas shortages in the United States, which is ridiculous because we are the United States. It says the NRLCA opposed five-day delivery. A bill to block five-day delivery was introduced by uh, Representative James M. Hanley, a Democrat from New York. On January 28, 2009, Postmaster General John E. Potter testified before the Senate that if the Postal Service is not able to readjust their payment toward the pre-funding of retiree health benefits as mandated by the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act of 2006, the USPS would be forced to consider cutting delivery to five days per week during the summer months of June, July, and August. On June 10th, 2009, NRLCA, along with other union and management groups of the United States Postal Service, was contacted for its input on the study of the impact of five-day delivery along with developing an implementation plan for a five-day service plan. On July 30, 2009, President Don Cantrell voiced opposition to five-day delivery before the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee. On September 30, 2009, the House of Representatives and Senate passed and signed into law H.R. 22, reducing the amount the United States Postal Service pays into the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund from $5.4 billion to $1.4 billion. That tells me right there that for already in the billions their their health funds, their health benefits fund is not feasible or realistic. So it's overinflated because they're already in the billions. So it's not manageable. So their wages and their benefits are, are beyond um, normal. They're abnormal. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's overinflated. And it's you and me that pay the cost of it. Not only as consumers, but our tax dollars. PMG Potter continued to unveil a plan to eliminate Saturday mail delivery regardless. On Thursday, April 15, 2010, PMG Potter testified before the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform that by the year 2020, the USPS cumulative losses could exceed $238 billion and that mail volume would drop 
from 2009. Let me get a drink of water. It goes on to say Patrick R. Donahoe echoed his predecessor's views on five-day delivery when he assumed office in 2011. On February 6, 2013, Postmaster General Donahoe announced that the Postal Service would implement five-day mail delivery beginning August 5th, a move he claimed would save $2 billion annually. Later the same day, the National Board of the NRLCA voted uh, not unanimously or Sorry, unanimously, I guess is the right word, to call for his dis- dismissal. I'm not surprised they would do that because they don't like change. As the universal service obligation and six-day delivery are upheld by congressional language within appropriations legislation. Therefore, a reduction in service would require action from the House and Senate. On July 16th, the House passed the Financial Services and General Government Appropriations Bill, which include language protecting six-day mail delivery, thereby blocking Donahoe's plan. He retired on November 14, 2014. I'm not surprised. He was probably kicked out, even though he was trying to help. His replacement, the first female postmaster general, Megan Brennan, has been noncommittal, I'm not surprised, on a five-day versus six-day delivery. She doesn't want to rock the boat. She doesn't want to make up her mind or do the right thing with this. While the issue remains on the table in her seeking of an overhaul of postal laws, she has stated that she wants to focus on similarities before differences. Basically, she doesn't want to do anything. As she works with stakeholders, including postal employee unions, to craft her approach to Congress. <clears throat> so she uh, is relying on other people way too much instead of knowing what to do. That's concerning. A drink of water. <clears throat> It says President Barack Obama's fiscal year 2016 budget endorsed the outgoing PMG Donahoe's proposed plan to eliminate six-day mail delivery. The next section is about privatization. On December 17, 2007, President Donald Trump criticized the Postal Service's relationship with Amazon. In a post on Twitter, the president states, Why is the United States Post Office, which is losing many billions of dollars a year, while charging Amazon and others so little to deliver their packages, making Amazon richer and the post office dumber and poorer, <laughs> should be charging much more? On June 21, 2018, the president proposed a sweeping government reorganization that would sharpen the focus on workforce training, consolidate government assistance programs, and shrink federal agencies. Amen. I would love that. He's trying to drain the swamp. As part of this proposal, he recommended uh, restructuring the Postal Service with an eye toward privatization. I don't blame him. I think that would be great. According to his proposal, privatization would cut costs and give the financially burdened agency greater flexibility in adjusting to the digital age. I agree with that. Unfortunately, the post office, the USPS, is so bent on just staying the same. But it's creating inflation, and it's, it's not providing good services. When you privatize things, first of all, you create competition, which is good. You technically increase wages, and you increase technology. Excuse me, it's kind of like MRI machines. Excuse me. You know, the original MRIs years and years ago are nothing like the ones we have today. But if we had never allowed the MRI machine industry to change... And to improve, we would not have better digital images today, meaning we would not have a higher quality of health care. We would not be able to catch cancers and tumors and other conditions early. 
we would be catching them later because we would not have the images that we need to see. So that's what privatization does. It makes things better, especially on a large scale. It says Article 8, Section 1, Clause 7 of the United States Constitution provides for the establishment of a postal service but does not specify how it is funded. The NRLCA fully opposes privatizing the postal service. I'm not surprised because they don't want change. They just want more money to do the same thing, which is not always a good service, and has publicly supported House Bill 993 and Senate Bill uh, 933 that would prevent privatization. Well, guess what? Technically, the post office belongs to the American people. It doesn't belong to the union. It belongs to all of us. So all of us have a say, not just the union. It says uh, contract delivery services uh, is purchased on a contractual basis by the U.S. Postal Service, whereby mail is carried from one USPS specified starting point to another via highway by private carriers. CDS carriers are not USPS employees, but are independent contractors who provide mail service on these routes. The NRLCA believes that contract delivery inhibits the security Um, sanctity and service of the USPS and believes that Congress should support HRES 282 and S1457. They just want control. They want a monopoly. And technically they already have one, and that's one of the biggest problems. Um, it talks about their food drive, which we've already talked about in a previous podcast, where I would personally want to know where all that food is going and did it end up where they say it did. So, um, let me go. Okay, so we're at the end of this article. So this is a good podcast. It's a little over an hour, but learned quite a bit with this one. And I didn't realize that there were so many different unions and associations within or that work with USPS. I was very ignorant before looking into this. I thought USPS was just all one big thing. I don't know how else to describe it. But I'm learning that there are so many working parts to it, so it makes it very interesting. So now, whenever we hear about these different things that the Senate or the House or whoever, whenever they're voting on things, now I have a clearer understanding of what they're talking about with these budgets. So I think it's very important that we all be educated on this because that's where our tax dollars are going. And the federal government should not be responsible. The federal government should not be on the hook for all these billions of dollars for a system that doesn't work. That is failing financially. That's why Trump was trying to privatize it. It has needed to be privatized for years. It's just that nobody in D.C. had the guts to say it. So guess what? A businessman, a really smart businessman, was the only one and the first one to publicly say that it needs to be privatized. And man, did he get a backlash for that from the media, from everybody. And it's like, I just want to say, wake up. Like, that's his job. Like he cannot ignore tremendous, tremendous amounts of debt that are causing a huge problem in our economy and within our currency. So if anything, business people are really smart. And I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm not just talking about the shark tank. Like I'm talking about all business people. They are really sharp, especially people that are extremely successful, are millionaires and billionaires. Like they didn't get that way, you know, by accident. You know, they had a very determined mindset. You know, I want to be successful. I want to do the right thing. And I want to be, I just want to do really good. And not only that, I want to make a lot of money so that I can get rewarded for this. Because, you know, if you invent something, you should be rewarded financially. And you should make more money. Because here's the thing. The more money someone makes, the more they can employ people. 
and provide wages and provide health insurance and all these benefits. See, because here's the thing. If you ha- here's why I bring this up. The USPS is in billions of dollars of debt, right? That's why they're having problems being able to fund their salaries or their benefits. It's because of trillions or sorry, billions, oh, I think it's not trillions, billions of dollars of debt. If you have a business owner, which first of all they would never be able to take on billions of dollars of debt, a business owner, no bank would allow that. But here's the thing, in the private sector, that kind of debt does not exist. Why? Because it is seen as financially unstable and not insurable. However, USPS gets away with it because they have a monopoly. And yet they're bankrupting technically their own themselves and they're bankrupting the United States of America by their stupidity and also by their greed. I know people probably don't want to hear that, but if you have that much money in debt, basically that can never be covered. There was over 200 billion dollars in debt based on how USPS was being mismanaged. Like they can't even currently cover their current employees' salaries, wages and benefits. And they for sure they, they can't even clear the retirees. They can't even clear all their stuff that they promised to pay. You know, when you make a promise, you're supposed to keep your promise and if you can't, you're supposed to find a way, a legal and ethical way to pay it off. Well, guess what? Going to the federal government piggy bank and expecting us the taxpayers to cover that is stupid it's wrong our monies are not supposed to be used to fund stupidity and poor management of funds see cuz here's the thing as taxpayers we're basically getting double dipped on not only when we go to pay for these overinflated expensive services of USPS but then our tax dollars are being allocated to them as well to cover all these costs within USPS for their benefits and fringe benefits and all these things that they cannot financially afford. Well, in the real world, in realville, if you can't afford something, you don't buy it. You find a way to afford it. But unfortunately, we have allowed USPS and these other unions and organizations that work in conjunction with USPS, we have allowed them to just do whatever they want. That would be like you or me walking into a bank and saying I want 2 billion dollars. And they say, "Okay, we'll fill out an application, we'll take a look." They look at my credit, and let's say for example, I have the credit of USPS which is in the tank. So I'm going and I'm asking for 2 billion dollars. They look at my credit and they see that I have over 200 billion dollars in debt and I have no way of ever paying that off. Do you really think the bank is going to give me 2 billion dollars on loan when I can't even pay off what I already have? and it is really bad. No, a, a private bank or even a credit union is not going to give me money for that because I have proven from my lack of character and my lack of understanding business that I cannot be trusted with money in that situation. That's USPS. USPS cannot be trusted with financial decisions is what I'm saying. They may be good people. If we're not talking about good people or even bad people per se you know we're not talking about oh well they deserve it well technically they don't they don't deserve those monies if they can't afford it it's not about being good natured or whether or not you deserve it it's about being financially and fiscally responsible because that's what it means to be an adult that's what it means to live in realville as opposed to fantasyville 
or acting like a spoiled, rotten little kid that goes a hissy fit in aisle seven in Toys R Us, which again went bankrupt. You know, what's interesting is that whenever companies don't manage their money as well, when they're not doing well, guess what? They go bankrupt. They they, they exist no more. But USPS. They've been in the hole for years, and no one has ever called them out on this. Like if they were a regular company, they would have declared bankruptcy years ago. But because they have been allowed to have a monopoly, they get away with all this stuff, and they should not, because that's not smart business sense. And see, here's the thing: there may be some people listening that they're like, "Well, Leslie, you're not in a union. You've never worked for the post office. You live in Oklahoma. You're probably some stupid country hick." What do you know? And I'm just paraphrasing what some people might think because this is what some people think about us in Oklahoma. But I'm not offended because I know <laughs> I'm not the problem in this, and I know I'm not a stupid country hick. But、um, here's the thing: mismanagement of money is just that it is mismanagement of money, and it doesn't matter whether I've worked for a union or you have worked for a union. It, it doesn't matter. You still have to be responsible. And, it, and if you have basically an entire, not an industry, but an entire segment that is refusing to be responsible with something that, that they are pretty much required by federal law to be responsible, but they are refusing to do it, then technically they are in violation of federal law and big time because they have over two hundred billion dollars in debt. Now, if you or I were to have over two billion dollar or two hundred billion dollars in debt, you know. I would think that we would not look very good, and it would look really bad for us to say, "Oh, give me more money." That's a character flaw. But no one wants to call USPS or these these、uh, unions out on this. That you know, we can't be playing favorites because, unfortunately, because favoritism has been happening, you have organizations like this and unions like this. That get away with a lot when they should not be able to get away with anything because the United States is based on freedom, democracy, and equality. And again, my stomach is growling because I'm thinking about Pizza Hut. But、um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that stuff like this disappoints me, but I know that we can do a better job. And what I was going to say was that you know USPS not only are they letting us down, the consumer. And also the citizens of the United States, and also foreigners that live here or that come visit here, they're letting them down as well, you know, because they technically deliver our mail all over the world. But I think more importantly, they're letting down their own labor force because they're jipping them of the opportunity to do really well because they're so stuck in their old-fashioned ways of mismanaging money, mismanaging labor. And so then, I have no doubt that the wrong people are constantly getting promoted, and the wrong people are constantly holding office. And there probably is quite a bit of discrimination within this organization and within USPS. It's just we don't hear about it because a lot of these fraternal organizations they cover for each other. They don't want people to know what's really going on, which is why typically they don't broadcast their 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 audits. They don't want people to really be aware, and we should be aware because this affects our country and this affects. All the citizens, all the citizens of the United States, is what I was going to say. But anyway,、um, let's look at let's look and see what the next one's going to be. The next one is going to be the Actors.、Um, I think it's Equity Association. I was going to say Equality, but it's Equity. That's very interesting.
Um, so it's the Actors Equity Association, founded in 1913. That should be interesting. So that will be our next podcast. But as usual, until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole. And do reach out to me and let me know if you've ever had any funky work experiences where you've had to take those weird tests or, or what your experiences have been with that. I think it would be neat to hear, hear some feedback on that because I know that I'm not the only one. And I bet I'm not the only one that said, hey, I'm not doing this because I know it's not going to go well. <laughs> I already know how I do on these and, uh, because it's not a normal test. My scores are almost always horrible because I don't even understand what I'm being asked, which is dumb because I'm literate and I know English. In fact, I know several languages, and I'm like, this is ridiculous. If I can't even make out what this is saying in basic English, I just roll my eyes at this stuff. Anyway, so until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole, that you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Don't let this world go down